So again, thank you guys for coming. Um, uh, just thank you for uh, being an audience for me. Um, I'm through doing this. I, sometimes I think that uh, I should defer to someone else older and wiser than myself for these sort of things. But I think if we if we all took that method, then we wouldn't do anything, and that's obviously not what we're called to do. So, um, but I just want to say uh, again, thank you for for coming and and uh, giving me this opportunity. Um, so before we begin, I'll open with a little word of prayer, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you again so much for this opportunity, and thank you for this uh, space and this land that we live in. I pray that you will uh, instruct us all through your word today. And even though we're going to look at some intellectual and sort of academic things today, Lord, I, I pray that your word would come through and be first and foremost in our mind, and uh, it is our guiding light and our source of truth. So I ask that you will uh, be here with us and uh, guide our conversation and our discussion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we... Oh my goodness. Heather's pen exploded. Uh, hopefully that's not a sign of things to come. Um, Last week, we talked about uh, hope and faith, and we ended it with sort of a discussion on uh, defending the resurrection, and really, I think, and Keith sort of uh, implicitly mentioned this. I sort of heard him under his breath. He's like, well, doesn't that mean we're going to have to defend scripture? Yeah, he's right on, right? So that's sort of where it leads. Um, we're going to get, we're going to have a class specifically on dealing with scripture and the doctrine of inspiration and all those sort of things. I think it's week six. Uh, we finally get to that. Um, so we're going to deal with scripture specifically for a whole class um, later on. But for today, um, the main thing we're going to do, on, it says it on the outline, we're going to look at uh, the different types of apologetic methods. So um, pardon me if we, we we're going to use a little bit of terminology, but I'm gonna, again, I'm going to try to do my best to not just get caught up in assuming that everybody understands what these words mean. So I'm going to try to parse them out as best that I can. Uh, one other thing is I want to just clarify one thing that I don't know if I made ex uh, uh, especially clear last week about hope. So we defined our hope as being justified by the resurrection. And I don't know if I actually mentioned that our hope is also our resurrection, right? So. Our hope is justified by Christ's resurrection, but the hope itself is actually our resurrection and eternal life with the triune God. Right? So it's not just our hope is just Christ's resurrection, because that really doesn't have any then carryover to, well, then what about us? Right? Great, it's Christ died for me, but what are the results of that? Right? So our hope as Christians is that we'll be united with Christ and we'll be raised just as Christ was raised. And... Um, to that effect, I think we could defer to, um, I think it was one of the first sermons Mike preached in sort of, a, uh, when as Dean being on the break and everything, um, he talked about the deification of man. So if you wanted to sort of think more about that, I don't want to just, we'll just defer to that sermon. So, yeah, there you go, Mike, deferring to you. Um, and then also we, we keyed on the resurrection as being sort of the main source of our hope. Um, you might have asked yourself, well, why did I just pick that? It's not that I just wanted to focus only on that event. Obviously, there's other important events. Uh, the crucifixion is important. Uh, Jesus' birth is important. right? The ascension is important. Pentecost is important. 
all these sort of things, they're all contained, I think, uh, within the wholeness of Scripture. And the reason I use the crucifixion is I think that's a good signpost for all of those things, right? If we take away the crucifixion, it sort of dismantles the rest of the system, right? And I think you could say that, too, about different instances. Obviously, if Jesus was never born incarnationally, right, as a man, that seems to make the system crumble. So there wasn't necessarily like, oh, I picked the crucifixion because that's the only thing we should have our hope in, right? It's just a picture of the wholeness of the gospel and the wholeness of Christ's work. So I just want to just want to make that clear. Very good. So as I said, uh, today we're going to be looking at different methods of apologetics. Um, and the... Uh, this really is going to center around um, the way I'm going to do this, this class is that we're going to look at these different types of apologetics with how they handle or understand uh, revelation. So not the book of revelation, but God's revelation to us, right? So we're going to look at natural revelation, that is the world around us, and we're going to look at what we call special revelation, which is scripture, right, or God's word. Uh, his sort of direct word. And so we're going to sort of compare these different methods with how they handle that issue of revelation. Okay? Very good. So we'll just get right into it here. Um, does everyone know? I mean, Cameron obviously probably does know the different methods of, of apologetics, but has anybody heard of some like different formal types of apologetics? Have just throwing out there if you if you think you know one. So we've got like there's what we call classical or historical. Has anybody ever heard that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so classical, historical, then you have what's called evidential, and then there's presuppositional, and then like any other field of study, there's a multitude of subcategories, and I was I was just brushing up this morning and it was just like well, there's like 16 different subcategories of presuppositional apologetics. So we're not going to get into those, (laughs) right? So today I am sort of being, um, I'm using generalizations uh, with these categories, but we're going to focus on um, just three of them, and that's classical, evidential, and presuppositional. So those words are big, you know, uh, but we're going to explain exactly what those all mean. So we're going to start with classical, uh, or you could just call it classic, but classical. So classical apologetics seeks to um, use logic or reason. So they start from the foundation of like the laws of logic and logical principles and stuff like that. Um, for example, the most famous law of logic is the law of non-contradiction, right? That says... Um, Oh, excuse me. And, and another one is, I think the easiest one to understand is actually the law of identity. And the law of identity basically says, I'm me and I can't not be me. That's confusing enough. So is A is A and it's not anything else, right? So these sort of ideas that um, classical apologetics starts with these things as being foundational and our sort of starting point with how we reason and how we think about the world. So what they seek to do is they seek to use logic to prove that God necessarily 
exists, right? Or that scripture is necessarily true. So they want to use logic and reason to prove that those things are necessarily the case and that we can't avoid them, right? So that's classical apologetics from the 10,000 foot elevation view, right? Is that a fair definition? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's classical. We'll leave that up for a second. Um, the second one is what we call evidential. And as the name suggests, they like, they like to use evidence. Um, I have to say that when I started sort of in apologetics and first got into it, I was definitely in this camp. I, I, the first things I learned were um, like the laws of logic and things like that, but it was based on this sort of model, right? And what the evidentialists use is they say, we want to try to prove that God exists beyond any reasonable doubt, right? So you can almost think about it in like a, a court of law situation, right? Where if Christians were on trial and they supported, they gave all the evidence, they put it all forward. Would the jury of rational human beings say yes or no to that, to, to the validity of, uh, validity of their arguments, right? So that's what they want to do. They want to use... Uh, the evidence to say that God exists beyond any reasonable doubt. Now, I, I'll mention something about that in a moment that I actually learned from Lord of the Rings. So we're going to go there, too. What, um, what exactly is the big difference between the two? Does sound alike to Yep, them. yep. No, that's the thing, is there's a lot of crossover. And even between, um, and that's a perfect uh, uh, observation, um, classical, evidential, and even presuppositional, for the most part, they are all starting with uh, what, for, what we'll get to in a second, which Frame calls a, a prior commitment. These are people who all are Christians, Right? They believe in the gospel. They believe the word of God is true. They believe scripture is inspired. So they're all starting from this, this, really the same standpoint. But I think what happens is, for the sake of trying to be persuasive to other people, they start at different points. Right. So yes, you're right. Evidential and classical apologetics, they're both leaning heavily on reason, on logic. And presuppositionalists, as we'll see, they do the exact same thing. We're not as a presuppositionalist, and that's sort of the method that we're choosing for this class as Reformed Christians that's sort of in our camp, um, we don't n neglect logic. We don't neglect reason, right? We just use a separate foundation for what justifies the use of that, right? So we're going to get to that in, in just a second. So we'll lay out the other one. So presuppositional apologetics. Is there an example of each of these? Is there... Well, classical apologetics, they're going to use um, certain sort of axioms, uh, which are basically just like self-evident uh, truth um, sort of arguments, right? So they would use like arguments um, of a first cause of the universe. The universe is an effect. Every cause or every effect needs a cause. If the universe is an effect, therefore it needs a cause other than itself. The best thing we have to describe that is God. So like if A, then B. Right. If there's a universe with a bunch of people living in it, then only God could bring that about. Right. Something like that. Right. So they're using, that's what we call a logical syllogism. That's just a, an argument. Right. So they set a logical argument that 
shows necessarily that there must be a God for basically us to exist, right? Those are the type of things they do. Now, evidentialists use those same arguments. They're going to use that. They use um, the cause and effect argument. They're going to use different. I mean, there's a whole bunch of you know the moral argument, teleological argument, the argument from design um, that the world appears to have a design or a purpose. Therefore, it needs a designer, right, or something that gave it purpose. Things like that. The evidentialist is going to use that, um, but they're also going to use uh, evidence that's a little bit less uh, sort of absolute than the classical apologist, right? So they're going to rely on um, things that might be a little bit more subjective or personal, so right? About like history. Yep. Can you prove the flood? Can you prove Jesus rose from the dead? Can you prove Jesus existed? Right. Things like that. These are things that require a lot of evidence to sort of support, but there's nothing out there really that necessarily logically proves that, for example, the flood happened, right? But they'll use a lot of evidence to uh, support that view, and they'll use that sort of in building their case, right? Um, you know the Bible came from God. How, right. How do you know it wasn't just written by men? Inspiration, issue, you know, the um, doctrine of inspiration, things like that. Yeah. So that's, that's where we're going on uh, between these two. But again, there's a lot of crossover. There's a lot of overlap. Um, and so the last one, which is what we're kind of using as our uh, the longest word you have to write ever, geez. Um, leave it to the reform people to pick the longest descriptive word. Yes, that's all I have to say. Um, so presuppositionalists, they... Uh, it might seem sort of crass to say it this way, but what it the hallmark of it is that they assume the Bible's true and use logic and reason because the Bible uh, uses logic and reason. So that might sort of sound a little bit on the nose and like, wait a minute, right? But that's essentially what they do. They're assuming that Scripture is true. Scripture is true. And then they reason from that, right? We reason from Scripture. Basically, how it reasons, that's how we reason. So they would say that what justifies using evidence, what justifies using logic, is because Scripture is true and because Scripture and purports and shows a God who is logical, a God who is supported by the evidence. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So obviously we can kind of see, and again, I might be... I might be being a little bit unfair to these categories, but I'm trying to make a point, right? Um, we can see that there's a, a big difference. And this is where I want to take a moment to uh, talk about, um, as someone who's been uh, trained in philosophy and gone to school for that, one thing that I realized right away getting into philosophy was there was this frustration that I felt, and I actually talked to some of my professors and other students, and they felt the same way. And if you've ever read a lot of philosophy, you'll feel this, that it seems like what a lot of philosophers are doing through time and throughout history, if they challenge somebody else or they make an argument against somebody who's even alive at their same time, is that there's a lot of arguing past one another. I call it arguing past one another, that it's like, well, you're saying that person is wrong, but you never actually challenge his arguments. You just make your own, and then you say that yours are better without ever challenging his. So I call it this sort of, and that doesn't always happen, but 
it seems to be prevalent. If I picked it up and other people are picking it up in our first or second years of learning about philosophy and the professors are like, no, that's definitely going on. There is this sort of arguing past each other. And they're saying that they're arguing with each other, but they're not actually dealing with, with each other's issues. And I realized this a few years ago, sort of in the later portions of my schooling, that the reason that frustration was there, the reason I felt like they were missing each other, is because oftentimes it's what we, it's what we presuppose as our foundations that we don't actually explicitly say that forms where we're going to start from and then where we end up. So what I realize is that a lot of philosophy is people starting in different points and not acknowledging it. So they'll say, well, this person starts here and they say that we learn things through uh, you know, empirical data. That is, we look at the world and that's how we learn. And then that puts them on a, per, a certain uh, trajectory, right? And then this person over here says, no, it's we, we think by um, pure reason alone. We don't need to look at the world. We have things that are we know to be true apart from experience, right? And they start on a different platform and go another direction, right? Well, there's never, if you do that, there's never really any inter, uh, you know, intersection where you're dealing with each other's issues and you're dealing with the other person's arguments. Now, sometimes that happens. But the reason for that is that there are underlying assumptions, underlying presuppositions or foundations to people's thinking that oftentimes don't go explained. And sometimes even, even among philosophers, they don't go challenged. They're so caught up in giving their own position that they, stop, they, they fail to think about what is the other person actually assuming before they even start to argue, before they even start to make a case, right? And I think that is the strength of this model, is because this is where presuppositionalism came from. Its very sort of birthplace was in this realization that, wait a minute, as Van Til says, he goes, there's pretty much, he boiled it down to, there's only two starting points. You either start with God or you don't. Those are your two starting points, and you have to choose. Right? So that's sort of what we're going to be talking about today. Now, like I said, these are, these are Christian people, right? So they're clearly starting with God. But what we want to do in our apologetic approach is we want to be consistent. We want to be persuasive. As Scripture says, we want to take every thought captive to the, to the obedience of Christ, right? So what we want to try to avoid are the pitfalls that may occur if we believe God exists, but we start from a platform that assumes something else as primary, that assumes something else as the first starting point. Is that... Are you saying like there's a lot of people that have a lot of free passes with, with their assumptions? Yes. Like, for example, like evolutionists will sometimes talk about how, oh, we can prove evolution because look at this whale here. We can see that this whale it has these other fossils that are connected to it, so therefore we can see this whale is evolving. But, but nobody ever stops to think and say, well, hold, hold on, wait, 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 hold the phone. Look at all these free passes and all these assumptions that you get to import into this assumption of the whale. Where did that, where did the, how did the whale even become that way in the first place? Right. Well, what about the cells? The, the cells, how do you even account for the first living cell? Right. It's, where it's, did it's the matter come first? from? 
that the whale's made up of. Right. Yeah, where'd the matter come from? Where'd the first cell come from, which is a universe? How did that come about? Right. We don't even know how to get that far. But then all of a sudden, this person gets this free pass to assume the matter, to assume the universe, to assume all this design, to assume all these cells, assume all this complexity. And they're jumping like miles and miles ahead of where they should be. And they're starting right. their argument from there. Right. Yep. So I, I, that's, that's exactly true. Um, the best question to ask, I think, someone like that, so the atheist who says something grandiose like, well, science has proven that uh, God doesn't exist. The best question to ask him is, why is science more authoritative than Scripture? Well, Get right they'll, at... They'll come right back and say, because Scripture was written by man, and so it's not holy. But wasn't science developed by man? See, if if scripture, so, so that's great that, no, they, they will say that, right? But I can come back and say, well, that might be a argument against scripture, but you haven't supported science by, by attacking scripture. Unless you're trying to say that it's the only game in town and that's the best we can do, right? But these are the sort of questions that I think are the best questions to ask, is don't just let people... Like, like Cameron said, don't give them the free pass. And we'll get to that in the later, actually the last two classes we have for this, um, the class in whole. Um, we're going to talk about uh, those sort of issues of, as Christians, maybe the best tactic we have is to just stop people in their tracks and go, hold on just a second. I'll tell you what I'm supposing, presupposing as my foundation, but let's see what your foundation is. And actually next class we'll find out Part of the strength of presuppositional apologetics is that if we take the Bible to be true, and if we believe that it's true, then the Bible actually says that everyone actually does believe in God. They just deny it. Mm -hmm. So everyone's without excuse, and we'll get to that even today. But they suppress it. So clearly, the, God's existence is without dispute, but people are denying it. Right? So... How do we go about showing that to people? That's the that's the Christian endeavor. So uh, we need to get we need to get moving along here. Um, <clears throat> I'm about a quarter of the way through, and class is 15 minutes from being done. Okay, uh, very good. So as I mentioned uh, before, um, John Frame in the book he he talks about uh, I think very aptly that as Christians <clears throat> we don't uh, begin our apologetic endeavor from sort of neutral ground, or just looking at the evidence, or just thinking about logic. Oftentimes, and I think rightly, when we're converted and we come to Christ, it's through experiencing the goodness of God, right? We experience what, and we have a taste of what a relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father for eternity will be like. We have a, we experience what salvation is and also we come to the con we we're convicted of our sin and feel the need for a savior right so if this is how we come to be saved that is much more of a sort of relational experience right mm -hmm. that's a relational experience it's not a purely logical syllogistic sort of experience that wow somebody just gave me an argument that was so convincing and i was like yep now I think the Holy Spirit can use that, right? I think everything within the realm of reality is usable by the Holy Spirit to bring people to faith. But it still requires the desire for a relationship, right? So we're talking about very different things here. And this is what he means by a prior commitment. 
that we're committed to Christ as we're committed to our spouse, right? Or as we're committed to the church. And this is one thing that I'm going to just mention really quickly. If, if our faith is built on evidence, there's a, I think there's one single problem with that. And that is the, the, the notion that, wait a minute, not all the evidence has brought in, has been brought in. So if we, if we put our faith and our stance and our, the justification for our faith purely on the evidence, well then there may be evidence out there that contradicts us and then we should accept it and deny Christ, right? But that's clearly not what Scripture teaches us to do. We're not waiting and continually looking for that one piece of evidence that'll show that Jesus didn't actually rise from the grave, right? No, we're committed to it almost, and I would say I think we are committed to it uh, beyond what the evidence can suggest, right? And I'll get to why I think that uh, here towards the end. Uh, Keith, did you want to say something? You can flip-flop that too. If somebody's on the other side of the coin there that doesn't believe in God, that's using their evidence, there's, they have to go from the same standpoint. Right. There's further evidence that could prove there is right. So they're Right. So that's why making these sort of absolute claims purely based on the evidence is a little bit dubious. It's like, uh, right? You may not have that one single piece of evidence that could change your entire worldview. Right? And I actually learned this from, uh, it, there was a saying in World War One. I, I learned this from watching documentaries on Lord of the Rings. There was a, there was a saying among the soldiers during World War One, which was, Look to your front, because if you start worrying about everything else that's going around you and trying to get all the information, you're not going to focus on what you're doing. So in other words, don't rely on where's that one piece of evidence that might give us all the information that we need. It's look to your front and do what you're supposed to do, right? And so that notion is very profound that, all right, we, if we rely solely on evidence, then there may be that one piece that makes the whole house crumble down, right? And that's clearly not, I think, what is purported in Scripture. It doesn't make that or give that sort of sense that, well, if there's one thing that the, the Gentiles can prove, then it, right? Which I guess, maybe Paul does say that when he says, as the preacher said last week, if Christ isn't raised, then we're, we're fools, right? But it doesn't say that that's a possibility to be proved, that they can prove that he didn't rise, right? So, anyways. Um, Oh gosh, we may, not, we may not finish today. We might have to do a little overlap next week. Um, so as I said, the, these three, what it comes down to, I think the main distinction is how they handle uh, God's revelation. So just really quickly, um, what are the two types of revelation that we've been given by God? Does anybody know? I, I mentioned them at the beginning. Our just nature in general. Nature, perfect, yep. So we have natural, what we call natural revelation. Wait, I spelled that wrong. Natural. Natural? You are ill. <laughs> <laughs> I had it right. Uh, natural, we'll just do this. Natural rev. My brain stopped working for a second. Uh, what's the other form? We, special, very good. Oh, you guys are sharp. I like it. God bless my wife, but I ask her these questions, and she's like, what? <laughs> Poor Julia. But I suppose if we had to speak in another language with these issues, it would be, we'd be equally 
stuck. So uh, natural revelation, what does that consist of? And you said that well, so nature, nature. right? Um, and also I think with, with under natural revelation, we can include things like our, our sort of human reasoning capacities. So logic, what logic would tell us, right? What reason would tell us. Um, uh, also things like uh, society, so we'll say social interactions, right? Things like that. Um, morality, love, right? And I'm thinking about these things as, as how we experience them sort of in a, uh, just an every day-to-day sort of experience and not really through the lens of Scripture, right? So all these things are natural revelation, right? Even people who aren't Christians, they go, wait a minute, it seems like murder is wrong, right? Why is that? It seems like logic works all the time. Why is that? Right? It seems like nature has a purpose, or there, it seems like there's purposes, right? or it seems like there's a design to it. It seems like it's a little bit too complex to just arise from nothing. Right? So this is what we're, contain- we're putting in natural revelation. It's sort of how the world reasons, sort of what we might call common sense, like things Romans like that. Two. Huh? Like Romans 2. Right. They did not have the law, they were law. Right. Yep. Things like that. Um, and then obviously special revelation. That is God's word, which we call the Bible, right? Or scripture. So scripture comes from the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the driving force and the inspiration of where scripture comes from. And it's spoken through in the Old Testament. It was spoken to mankind through the prophets, mm-hmm. and in the New Testament, it's given to us through Christ, and then by virtue of that, through the testimony of the disciples, as we talked about last week. So we have the prophets, and then the disciples. We'll just Obviously, Paul wasn't a disciple, he's an apostle, so the, the lines sort of blur a little bit there, but um, anyways. <laughs> um, so... Uh, again, natural revelation. I'll just read one verse here. Um, we understand this from places like Job, right? The whole later part of Job is basically God explaining to Job, like, did you create the universe? Did you? Can you hold star clusters in your hand? Those sort of things, right? Can Can you match my power and my might? No, right? Again, Psalm 19, one through two. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. Right, So the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That's right here. Natural revelation is nature is pouring forth speech about God. Um, and then we have Romans 1, 18 through 20, which says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those... Excuse me, uh, 19 through 20. We'll just read 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, right? So what we have here, and we'll just finish with this really quickly. What we're given in Scripture is that natural revelation, A, is God's word because we believe it was created by God speaking, right? And what does First John tell us? Jesus is actually the Word of God who, who did this. All things that have are created were created in and through Christ, right? 
The other interesting thing is that natural revelation, as uh, Psalms and Romans just said, right, and Romans 2 even, man is without excuse. So if man is without excuse, without excuse to God's existence, purely from natural revelation, we might ask the question, then why do people not believe in God? If, it, if they're without excuse, even regarding his divine character, what's the deal? How come everyone isn't convinced? Right? Because we suppress it. Again, perfect. So, in uh, the, the first section of that Romans passage that I re- just read says this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, if we were creating sort of a system here, what we have is that man is without excuse regarding God's existence. But they suppress that truth. Now, one other thing really quickly. The relationship that we, we didn't really talk about the relationship, but the way these two things relate to one another is that Scripture, or God's Word, is always a clarification and a corrective mechanism of our interpretation of natural revelation. So God's Word always tells us and corrects us on what we believe about natural revelation. So that's the relationship. Now, this is still God's revelation, and properly understood, it points us to God himself. But when we err, we need scripture to correct us. And that's pretty much been the model throughout the entire biblical narrative, right? God actually had to come and talk with Adam. God had to come and talk with Abraham, right? Why is this? He had to give them special instruction, special information, in order to communicate things like salvation, Right? to communicate things like their need for salvation and the coming of a Messiah. Right? This is what's contained within special revelation. So that's the relationship. Special revelation or scripture always interprets what we, what we learn about natural revelation. So that's the move. Right? So the error is sometimes, and I think this is what we can fall into the trap of doing, is create, treating these completely equal. And then what happens is we say, well, wait a minute, nature seems like, as science would say, We'll throw some stones here. Na- uh, nature seems like says that the universe is billions of years old. Well, if we assume that these are the same thing, if these are on equal footing, natural revelation and scripture, then natural revelation, that assumption that we just, or that thing that we just gained from observing the world, is free to interpret scripture mm-hmm. if we treat them on equal ground. But that's not what scripture says. Scripture says that it's authoritative over natural revelation and it interprets it, right? So, if man is without excuse purely from natural revelation, but he suppresses that truth, what is he actually suppressing? If this interprets this, and he's without excuse regarding natural revelation, what does he have to suppress or deny in order to uh, not believe, basically? The Bible. Very good. So, the suppression of the truth is actually a suppression of Scripture. A denial of scripture, as I would say, if you deny scripture as authoritative, if you deny scripture as the 
supreme source of knowledge, and coincidentally, if you deny Scripture as the supreme source of knowledge and like the fundamental source of truth, you're also denying God as the fundamental source of truth. So if you deny that, then I would say you are you will necessarily err in your understanding of natural revelation. And I think this is what we have in society, right? Why do we have so many crazy, what we think, and again, even my language, it shows sort of the point that we ask this question all the time. We go, how can people believe that about abortion? How can they believe that's okay? How can people believe that about uh, homosexuality, right? Or these sexual, sexually depraved practices, right? How can they believe these things? Well, all of a sudden, the question of how can they believe that, it seems so crazy to us. It's like, well, wait a minute. If they're denying Scripture, the very thing that would correct their view, then all of a sudden it changes from how can they do that to there's, that is what they will believe. That's what they should. In a sense, they have no other choice but to believe that. They're being that. consistent. They're, they are actually being consistent. Yeah, that's you the crazy thing. What, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. That's all I was going to say. <laughs> What's really inconsistent is um, the Christian camp that has actually bowed the knee to science mm-hmm. right. and accepts uh, a billion-year-old universe and, uh, right. you know, so right. they've, they've kind of, to look cool with the cool kids in the science class, we've actually uh, left our yeah. position. We've left our footing. And that's precisely sort of what I'm getting at today is that if you leave Scripture and say there are there's another source of truth that's ultimate, that's the supreme source of truth in the universe, and it we can, do, we can get there without Scripture. If you say that, then natural revelation is actually above Scripture. So it's, it's free to interpret Scripture. Well, that, I think, is precisely the pitfall and the danger of uh, any apologetic method, but particularly classical and evidential apologetics, right? Because they say, well, maybe we don't need Scripture. Maybe logic alone can get us there. seeing the depth of sin right uh, they're playing out where they're at yeah in depravity mm-hmm. yeah Romans 1 mm-hmm. you know um, it's all over there yep. you can't deny that right. and that's that's a scary thing when God has turned someone over to their thinking yep and that's what's happening within I guess again in the Christian circles in the church but mm-hmm. for uh, learned men to all of a sudden believe that, you know, like, yeah, I'm a young earth guy, and it, we're looked at as if we're laughed at. Now. Yeah, we're looked, we're looked at like we have lobsters coming out of our ears. Yeah, that's yeah. really true. I mean, uh, to, to say that, yeah, I believe that God created the earth in literally six days, yeah, everything, in six days, and uh, and it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's got the, uh, you, you, you're looked at like you're the weird yeah. uncle in the room. Yep, and uh, the the interesting thing is that uh, I forget who said this, um, but I was reading one of the books, one of the books for my study, and and it said that the one area that the secular world, or we'll just say the non-Christian world, loves to defend is their reasoning ability. Right now, if we take the notion of depravity seriously, 
total depravity, right? That isn't total depravity except for my ability to reason, right? If we're totally depraved apart from God, then that means my reasoning capacity and my reasoning faculty is depraved as well, right? And this is actually, this is where we'll end. But this is what uh, Frame actually concludes is that uh, he says that non-Christians, people who don't believe, he, he classifies them as non-rational persons. That is, they are incapable, because they deny scripture, they are incapable capable of reasoning correctly regarding natural revelation. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, because of the interplay between these two. Because of the interplay between special revelation and natural revelation. So all this today is we're trying to make a case to God's word. Right? We're pointing to God's word as our foundation. It is our starting point. It is the source of truth because as next week we'll learn, um, we're going to look at Scripture is the source of truth. It's the supreme source of truth because God is, right? And it's, after all, God's Word, right? So that's what we're going to look at, look at next week. Um, let's see if there's anything. Oh, I just wanted to, well, yeah, we have a little bit of time. So um, now, I just want to make this uh, clarification really quickly and we'll end with this. I don't want us to think that, oh, well, if we start from this point, we can't make any mistakes, right? Because we know from Scripture that what do we do? We struggle against our old self. So even though we've received the Holy Spirit and we've believed in Scripture, we've been given faith so we can see things clearly, we believe in the very thing that clarifies and corrects our understanding of the world. It doesn't mean we're, I mean, it'd be awesome if when we were saved, we just were deposited perfect understanding, right? But that's not what happens. We're not, our minds are renewed, but it's over a lifetime. It takes a lifetime of refining and renewing these things, right? That's why we have, the scripture says things like 2 Corinthians 10.5, right? Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When we first become Christians, this isn't something that just happens automatically, right? Mm -hmm. This is something we have to learn and grow in, and this is why we have community and sharing community. This is why we don't just go and lock ourselves in the high cold tower and think about things, right? We need community and we need to learn from each other to refine our thoughts, to refine what we believe about Christ. And ultimately that draws us closer to Him, right? Learning about God is growing in your knowledge about Him, right? It's growing in relation to God. So this, just because we believe in Scripture doesn't give us a free pass in the sense that, well, I believe it, so I'm always going to be right. No, we're struggling against our old self. This is always trying to creep in. The errors of what we believed when we weren't saved and the errors of the world are always trying to creep in to what we believe about God. Um, you know, And I think the, the most telling thing is, is that people will say things like, well, if God's a father... You know, I, every father I've ever known has been awful to me, and you know, I hate I hate my father, and so why would I? I don't want to think of him as a father, right? It's like, well, that very thing is this. It's your experience creeping in and informing your understanding of God, right? And so there's a perfect opportunity for us to take that person aside and say, yeah, if your father was the was the was the um, hallmark and sort of the standard of fathers, then yeah, God's a jerk. But that's not what's going on here. God is the standard. Your father fell short, right? 
those sort of things. Um, so that's really our goal as apologists. Um, and that's really what I want us to take away is that we want to start from Scripture because it's the most solid footing. God is the most solid footing. Right? These things change. As we, if you've looked at history at all, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, every couple decades, we're on something else. Right? Here, not so much. It's solid. It's firm. So. Oh, hello. Well, that's uh, that's our cue to exit, I guess. Very good. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry.